Jet, thank you for joining us on the Resolve Podcast. No worries, Ed. Pleasure to be here. So this is your second podcast in a week. Yeah, I'm a bit of a podcast hussy. <laughs> I like it. What uh, what what was like the topic or uh, focus on that podcast? Um, I was doing work with a place called Bamboo U. It's mm-hmm. up at the Green School here in Bali, and uh, we were talking about bamboo and the different types of bamboo. It's the reason I'm here in Bali. Doing mm-hmm. a lot of work looking at how you turn bamboo into a laminate material. And up at the Green School, they do a lot of work with round bamboo in architecture. So we're just figuring out what's better or can they both coexist? Yeah, yeah. I like it. So they do they focus in bamboo or architecture or Bali period? Well, so the Green School, it's, you know, it's one of the big schools around here. Yeah. And they're very... Um, looking at kind of alternative forms of education mm-hmm. and it's all built inside of this incredible bamboo architecture uh, and that you know they kind of really pioneered some new styles of architecture that really no one had seen before until it was made here in Bali yeah and are they doing that with their staff or they're hiring it out to people to build it oh so there's like a um, well when it first started they they've made a company and abuku it their their local architects here and um, they they built it all themselves. And, yeah, I mean, that kind of was a launching point for these guys 15 years ago. And, you know, they've been doing amazing stuff ever since. Yeah. And then you've got the school. So the school then kind of exists as its own thing within this place. And oh, then from okay. a spin-off from that, they now run like a university for people wanting to learn about bamboo. And there's a course actually going on right now. So I was doing the podcast to kind of get everyone excited about the course and then... I'll be heading up and teaching there next week. Oh, really? That's yeah. Uh, yeah you said you were traveling. That's cool. Um, so, by trade, like, did you always want to be an architect? Both my parents studied architecture, so it was probably the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, they met at architecture school, and I had no desire to, to copy them. And here I am doing the exact same thing. <laughs> Can't escape. So similar for me. My my dad was an engineer. My brother became an engineer, and he was like, "Here's what you need to do." And I and that that wasn't like the way to speak to me when I was a kid, mm-hmm. right? I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna do the opposite of that." Yep. So I did want to just like be in business, but now I'm totally all in in the engineering field. I'm I although I'm not an engineer, but yep. like pretty much only I work with engineers, yep. and my clients are engineers and. No, I think you fall into what you know, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, from day one in university, did you study engineering? Oh, sorry, architecture? architecture? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's different. In Australia, it's different to the States. Like, you go in, you study one thing, uh, and it's very tunnel vision. So, you know, you're learning about architecture. You're not doing kind of that broader education. But it's it's really cool because... You, when you study architecture, you're, you know, you're gaining all these skills that even though it's called architecture, it's named after a profession, really you can do anything with those skills. You learn to communicate, you learn how to do graphic design, all that stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, like, I mean, being here in Bali for me is partially ar- architecture, but it's also like the reason I've come is to look at product development, look at how we get a business going over here that is trying to kind of manufacture sustainable building materials. Uh, and not much of that is actually designing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that and therein, like many engineers say, I don't even use my engineering degree mm. type thing. But it, at least you didn't say that. No, <laughs> I definitely use my degree. Yeah, yeah. So uh, were some of the specialty courses in university around bamboo or that's no. just been a post-university interest? Yeah, I mean... No one's building with bamboo in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I uh, I got into bamboo, well, I guess I finished uni and uh, I didn't really want to go find myself working in an office. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And at the end of university, I'd gone off and done some workshops and I really wanted to be building. Mm-hmm. And so bamboo offered a kind of easy pathway into building things without having to do a, you know, carpentry apprenticeship and all of that stuff so we were playing around with bamboo making stuff and from that it kind of evolved and yeah it was i i started working with it because i just wanted to be hands-on yeah and not 
always just be behind a desk and that's kind of led me on a, a kind of pretty wild little journey over the last few years yeah so do you work closely with the people who are like doing the lifting and tying and whatever mm. well I mean, at least so in the beginning yeah well so here in i mean here in bali it's very different you know there's an incredible traditional craft so um coming to bali it's pretty special you come here and really you can draw a squiggle and someone will build it for you. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Australia, none of that exists. We, uh, when we first started, no one knew anything really about building with bamboo. So you kind of had to go and you traveled and you learned from people. And we came back and we developed our own way of working with the material. So we do a lot of stuff with festivals. We do a lot of stuff with like groups of people, community, school, education. Uh, and part of the process of making something is actually about also teaching. Mm-hmm. So you get a, a collection of people together, maybe you're building a stage for a festival or you're building an artwork or you're building a pavilion. And that process of making is also a process of teaching. Okay. Yeah. Is, it, is some of the teaching like figuring it out as you go, what fits together and new ways to join pieces? And Yeah. So like part of it is like we'll take them into a forest because again, you're not going to rock up to your hardware store and get a piece of bamboo you have to actually go into the forest you know i have a chainsaw we 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 pick out the the poles you cut them down you teach them how to strip the leaves off it split it if you're going to weave with it um sometimes treat it and then you know we'll take it to the building site kind of you teach everyone how to connect it with ropes or with nails um and 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 make it and you know we make pretty complex forms but the process you try to break down into really simple steps so you can teach everyone a really simple repeatable task and then everyone does that on mass and you end up with a really wild massive object that you can build pretty quickly man that's wild and uh man that's really what are the pros and cons of building with bamboo that so like we i think we first met at that saguaro festival yeah where there was lots of bamboo structure and lots of like natural and and how do we use things from the environment without taking away from the environment and things that are sustainable so that was all interesting and that was that was really my i mean i guess i've been around like beach cabanas that are built Mm. of bamboo but never specifically taken note of like the complexities and the construction and everything that went into that and, and how unique it is. Um, but after that, and, and you said you were into it, so I went back and did some Googling. And, um, you know, I was just curious on that. Like, mm. what are the pros and cons? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one because it's, it's kind of in a process of transition. So traditionally, you have, I guess, a vernacular architecture. So vernacular architecture is the local style. Uh, and in a place like Bali or Southeast Asia, uh, bamboo grows everywhere. And so bamboo was a very everyday material. You would have a clump in your backyard, you cut it down, you might use it to make a fence, you might use it to build you know, build your house out of it, uh, all sorts of things. You, you might eat it. Uh, and so it was part of everyday life. And then, I guess as the world has developed and you have modernism and you have this kind of whole industrial uh, architectural landscape now and urbanism, uh, that's changed. So architectural, you know, vernacular architectural styles, uh, something that people get excited about, but, you, you know, you, don't, you can't really see people building that way in a city anymore. Um, steel, concrete, it's like glass. You're, it's like a lifestyle project type thing. Yeah, and so that's, and that's interesting because it's changed the way you view it. So it's gone from being this essential part of the everyday to instead almost a fashion in a way. So, you know, you or me, we're not choosing to build with bamboo because, you know, it's the only locally available material that we're going to grab out of the backyard. We're choosing to build with it because, you know, maybe it's interesting. Maybe we like the look of it. Maybe we're interested in sustainability and we go, okay, well, this is a really fast-growing you know, material that can do interesting things structurally. And so there's a shift in perception. It's gone from being, you know, an object of, you know, use and like you require that use and it's become something that is, you know, we're choosing to build with it because, okay, maybe we're trying to figure out how do we address the fact that the built environment has a huge ecological impact. And that's what I'm looking at. It's, you know, the built environment 
accounts for a very large proportion of you know global emissions the construction of concrete steel glass everything you know very necessary to house growing urban populations but obviously at some point in time you're gonna you know you're gonna fall off a cliff where maybe we've over extracted resources maybe we've run out of resources because some of these resources are finite and we're looking at how do you transition how do we start to introduce materials that are renewable but can be used in a way that suit urban environments and that's why we're taking the bamboo uh, we're splitting it we're processing it and gluing it back together into essentially a piece of lumber oh okay yeah yeah because you were saying even uh plywood right yeah so like plywood structural beams um you know we're, we're now we're actually even looking at doing like you know five-story multi-story construction you know following in the footsteps of mass timber which you see a lot of in the states or in europe uh you know these really big timber elements that you can use to build you know they're building skyscrapers now out of it yeah so i, I don't know if i realized that before i think uh, now i remember you telling me but you're not building like a bamboo structure like it looks like bamboo no you're using bamboo to make things that look like traditional building materials. Yeah, so the last 10 years, I've been building bamboo things that look like bamboo. Mm-hmm. And so my background is, you know, working with it as a natural material. Uh, but I guess putting on a different part of my, like, architectural hat, I'm really interested in how I can use it in, you know, my run-of-the-mill everyday project where, you know, I'm using bricks, concrete, timber can I integrate bamboo into that process? How unique are you guys in doing that? Pretty unique. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a community of people all doing it, uh, but it's very much in its infancy. So, you know, you kind of know everybody else. There's a few companies in the States, a few people in Europe, um, a lot of universities interested, but we're all talking to each other and, um, yeah, just trying to kind of follow in the footsteps of timber. Uh, But then bring along bamboo and find ways that, yeah, we can turn it into a building material. How do we get it certified by engineers? Mm-hmm. How do we put it on the, you know, the, what, what do we need to do for someone in America, for someone in Australia to be able to pick this up and be able to use it and, you know, meet all the requirements from government, all the bureaucracy, meet all the needs from an engineer uh, and also make sure it's cost effective and, and looks good. Yeah. Is most of the product that you make exported now already? No, so it's right now we're looking at using it inside of Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And part of that comes back to the narrative of um, we're looking at a material that we're growing here in Indonesia uh, and we look at the whole value chain. So we start at the very start. Where do we grow the bamboo? Uh, we're working with villages in rural communities. So right now there's a bunch of you know, areas in Flores, a couple of islands over here from Bali. Uh, where you know that's the starting point uh, growing the bamboo growing it in areas where perhaps there's degradation of existing landscapes using the bamboo to reforest uh, as part of a diverse ecosystem and then getting the villages to harvest the bamboo split it uh, and then we aggregate it all so you can have all these little village co-ops and then you bring it together into a single manufacturing point here in Bali and we turn it into a product uh, and then we build with it here in Indonesia and so you've got this material that you know starts its life in a forest here it's part of you know a restoration of a landscape it's adding uh village scale you know economies and income uh and then it's it's getting turned into a material that's actually storing carbon as well so uh you're locking up that carbon and so there's kind of you look at it the whole way through uh and that's that's what we're trying to do we're trying to kind of come at it from the point of view that there's Obviously, you know, structural benefits to working with bamboo, but there's also ecological, social, uh, yeah, cultural benefits to also using this material. So am I visualizing it correctly that, like, you make, like, sawdust chips and then you make a two-by-four out of that, or is that... <laughs> that's I know that's option. extremely crude. But no, no, that's an option. Okay. We're not doing that one. That's actually quite, a like, a high-tech version. Uh-huh. Um, they basically just compress it all into what they call strand-woven. Uh, no, the best way to picture it is you take bamboo. Bamboo's a tube. Mm-hmm. Um, and you split it into strips that are about three centimetres wide. Yeah. And the bamboo here in Indonesia, um, the particular species we use is called uh, Dendrocalamus asper. And it's massive. It's 30, 40 metres tall. Okay. Um, the diameter of the trunk is, you know, 30 or 40 centimetres. 
So, you know, it's not like the little bamboo you get in your backyard. It's like this? No, it's like twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. like that. So, like, it's like 12 a inches, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 12 inches, exactly. And uh, so it's big. And then we split it into these strips. And then we take those strips, we put it through a planer so that it's squared on all sides. Uh, and then you press it all together. Uh, so you, you kind of make a plank. Okay. Out of those little rectangular strips. And are they like glued together with adhesive? Yeah, they're glued together. Okay. Yeah. So when you guys are, I guess you're, you've figured all this out, your group, right? To a degree. Yeah. I mean, we have a product, but then we continually, we're always doing R&D. So how do we get better glue bonding? How do you choose a glue that, you know, probably has got better ecological credentials? What's the difference between glues if you use it inside or outside? You know, so like you can make a product, but then you kind of have to keep refining and refining to make it the best possible thing. Yeah. And is there, <clears throat> you're saying there's a lot of uh, collaboration within the people that are mm. researching this and figuring out, are there once, like, do you guys have proprietary techniques that then you keep such that you guys can grow yeah. the market and obviously profit mm -hmm. like discreetly from that? Or is there just a lot of collaboration and everybody's trying to do it's like an that's share. A, no, it's an interesting one because, I mean, it's at a stage where sharing is beneficial, mm -hmm. but then obviously we exist in a commercial world with imperatives that require, you know, perhaps at certain times, a certain level of a certain level of uh, confidentiality. So we're pretty open source, to be honest. Um, I know there's a bunch of companies, particularly in places like Europe and America, where they trademark a lot more here. I think it's a little bit more open. And so I don't think we're really holding particular IP. We're just doing it. Uh, and we're doing it because we, you know, we have a particular advantage here in that we're local. Um, we're dealing with local materials. Uh, there's an economies of scale that comes from that compared to say shipping this material to the States or to Europe and making it there. Um, and to that extent, you know, yeah, like we're working with a lot of universities and this material really started, you know, there's this kind of these two things that happen. You have the academic and then you have the practical. And you, you need both of them, particularly with emerging technology. So you have the kind of academia who are researching these ideas that are, say, taking existing timber processes and theorizing that if we did these things, this would work. And then you need people who are actually making stuff. And so we go back and forth between the two. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with the University of Southern California, University of Coventry, um, there's people at Cambridge University, there's, you know, all sorts of people who are kind of part of this network. And, yeah, everyone's pretty open and pretty happy to share. Uh, and that's actually, like, you need it because we come across this a lot where you'll find someone else doing the exact same thing, mm -hmm. making all the mistakes. Uh, and so we do a bit of mentoring as well with people who might want to start a, a factory line in Africa, you know, and they're at the very beginning of that journey. And we've gone through so many iterations and so many failures and how do we learn from those failures? And so I think it's good to be able to help people with that. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you guys believe that it's good for the planet, yeah. I guess the, you know, the, the fastest path to doing something good for the planet is the sharing and learning yeah. from each other. Is yeah. that so like that group that was doing a lot of speaking at the conference, like those would be the type of groups that w you guys would collaborate with? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, th so the conference <coughs> you're talking about, Suara Festival was, yeah, it was interesting. They brought together a whole lot of kind of interesting leading thinkers and, uh, you know, the architects who were speaking, uh, the people we would want to use our product. Uh, and, you know, they are the people we're talking to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because... It's, you know, with something that's kind of early stage, you need brave pioneers to take it on. Uh, so, yeah, we're like we're at the stage where we're doing kind of flagship projects. We want, we want the designers, we want the developers, we want the builders who are able to, you know, look at, I guess, the commercial side of things, but also balance that out with a, an appreciation for ecological concerns, for social concerns, uh, and they become our champions. And so, you know, we work with them, we're open in the sense that like we're still defining our product we're still you know making it better and you use that feedback so 
you can share, they give you feedback, you evolve the product based on that. What about, all right, going back, yeah. the, the pros and cons of building in the, I don't know how you describe it, the natural way yep. with bamboo that looks like bamboo. Yep. What's, uh, like I would think, insulative property, like, I yeah. don't know, unless you did some kind of mudding on the outside, there's there's got to be air mm. that's leaking. 100%. I mean, it's all about context, right? Uh-huh. So, one, I mean, not to start doing an architectural history lesson here, but one of the um, biggest changes in the way that we design over the last 100 years has been, I guess, the rollout of modernism across the world through globalization and the advent of air conditioning. Mm-hmm. So really, up until you had air conditioning, if you were designing in the tropics, there was a very particular way of designing, and we call that the vernacular. And so if we're here in Bali, you have a big roof, Lots of shade, lots of ventilation um, because you want your building to be able to stay cool through the ventilation. If it heats up, you want it to cool down really quickly. And by ventilation, you just mean the ability for natural draft. Natural draft. So it might be quite open. And so to that extent, bamboo actually is a very suitable material because you're not looking to have insulation. Mm -hmm. So it's different. If If we're in the desert, in the desert, it gets really hot in the daytime and really cold at nighttime. And so you want that insulation because you actually want to slow down the temperature change. Yeah. You don't want it to get real hot real fast. Whereas here, we want to be able to get as cool as quickly as possible. Uh, but with air conditioning, that changed everything. Suddenly, we don't have to worry so much about keeping sun off our building. We can close the doors and we can stay cool. Um, and so if you want to build with bamboo, okay, maybe that's a challenge. If you want your standard modern house in bali whereas you see a lot of the best buildings here made from bamboo built where it's open (coughs) maybe it's not using air conditioning uh but then you might go to Colombia, for instance and actually as you rightly said before they cover it in mud Mm. you know and so you know the spanish when they arrived in Colombia a couple of hundred years ago they took their own particular techniques from europe you know, in a style similar to like wattle and daub. Um, and they they coat the bamboo with mud and they turn it into, you know, what looks more or less like an adobe wall. Okay. Yeah. I feel like you see that on cabins in the woods in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. Like where the joints are, are mudded or concrete or something. Yeah, so it's a, you know, again, it's a very old traditional way. You have a timber frame um, and you might put like a little lattice in between and then you just cover it in mud yeah. uh, and you build up those walls that way. Uh, and that was, you know, that's a really great building practice um, that's hundreds of, hundreds of years old and still relevant. But generally, people don't build with it because it's not convenient. Yeah. And so I think a lot of architecture comes down to convenience, you know, particularly in places like America or Australia where time is money. Yeah. You can't do labor-intensive things. So it's much more efficient to have a piece of plywood or a piece of chip rock or something that you can just attach to a wall and it's quick. Yeah. Whereas you come here to Bali, you, you work, you know, throughout the global south where labor's not as expensive and suddenly it becomes possible to actually work with these more labor-intensive materials and processes. But generally there's this kind of overarching status that's attached to architecture and so people imitate what they know and what they see in the west interesting like is um so so building let's say we wanted to build a a bamboo cabana or even a a bamboo villa yeah i mean is that going to be expensive i mean yeah probably to be honest because well labor again labor So, so it's, it's less expensive, but it's going to take a long time, so it just adds up regardless. It just depends, right? So there's like many different layers of which you could build with bamboo. And, a, you know, to return to your early question as well, like, and that determines how long it's going to last. So there's your like, I'm going to cut down a pole, I'm just going to lash it together with some sticks, I'm going to put it up in my backyard and I've got a gazebo, and it might last a couple of years. <coughs> That's not expensive. Until the wood cracks yeah, from the weather. You know, so bamboo, it's kind of like a soft timber. You don't really want to put that outside. So you've got to make sure you have a nice roof, 
a good footing, get it off the ground, protect it from getting too much sun on the, you know, on the walls. Uh, and, um, you know, so it might not last a very long time, but if you design for it, if you build for it correctly, it can last hundreds of years. Um, That's it's, wild. It's wild. Like, you know, before we started this podcast, we were looking at that Japanese architecture book. In Japan, there are buildings, you know, up in the mountains, up in the snow, uh, big A-frame barn-style construction where, you know, the, the, the main structure is timber and the roof is all bamboo. 200 years old, made wow. from bamboo. And it's actually really interesting because that whole building is actually a system, like an ecosystem into itself. Uh, because up in the mountains, they, they grow um, silk in, up, in the, up in the attics. And the silk and the, and the silkworm, actually, it sits in this place where the smoke from the fire comes up into the attic and that helps, I, don't, I can't remember why, but it helps with the silviculture, uh, so with the, growing the silk. And um, at the same time, that smoke coming up in the attic carbonizes the bamboo. Hmm. And so the bamboo is slowly smoked and dried and carbonized over time. Like the, the inside side of the bamboo. Yeah, well, the, um, because the whole bamboo is sitting underneath the roof. Yeah. And the roof is a big, thick, thatched roof. And so the whole attic is just this smoke and it's kind of warm and, and you get the bamboo and it turns from, you know, a yellow colour to this beautiful dark brown. Uh, and it's preserved. There's no light getting on it. There's no water getting on it. Insects, pests can't eat it because it's, you know, it's, it's had this kind of carbonisation process. Uh, and that's a way of making it last. Interesting. Otherwise, do you have to do maintenance on it, like yeah. oils and stuff like that? Yeah, if you're going to put it outside, you varnish it. If you, well, anytime you work with it, you have to treat it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's got a lot of starch sugars in it. So you need, you need to make sure that like termites, borers don't eat it. So, you know, you treat it with, well, often people use something called borax. It's a salt. Um, you soak it in the borax uh, and that helps to stop it, you know, getting eaten by bugs. Yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah. So anyway, it's a whole world. It's a whole yeah. world. And, like, you kind of find yourself going deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's a bit weird because here I am, some bloke from Australia who is knocking together bamboo structures for festivals. And now I'm back in Bali. And, you know, like, you work with it. But it's, it's like anything, right? Like, the more specific you get on a topic, whether it's engineering, whether it's architecture, whether it's a particular type, like just leads you places oh man yeah like i never knew the world of coatings and claddings and everything when i got into it and now it's just like there's you, you've learned more and you've learned so much but you also realize how much you didn't know and yep. how much more there is to learn depending on one of a million directions you want to go in totally totally yeah so what what is the goal with that honestly with the, i actually the, really don't know yeah um my I don't know. The way I've often lived my life is probably slightly just following instinct. Um, and it all makes sense in hindsight. Uh, and it just felt right. Like I got young kids right now. Moving to Bali felt like a really interesting thing to do. And this was a great excuse. You know, we've been doing this work for years and I've been kind of flying in, flying out from Australia and it just made sense to move here now. And the goal for us is we really want to scale uptake. So we're looking at how do we get adoption? How do we get widespread adoption? Um, how do we create a very standard set of products? Uh, how do we get them certified? I don't know. There's a whole roadmap of just bureaucratic certification that's not oh, yeah. so exciting, but it's very necessary. Uh, and then there's a whole other thing of ongoing product development and testing. So we, you know, We've got a factory up the road from where we're doing this podcast. And, you know, every week we're breaking beams. So we'll build a beam, you know, you're load testing it. You're, you're seeing why is it failing? Okay, can we fix that problem? Okay, now it's breaking because of a different reason. How do we fix that problem? Uh, yeah. You know, we, we, we did some tests the other day and we're showing it to our engineers last night. And they're like, shit, like this is twice as, you know, strong as wood. And we were like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Amazing. We knew it was going to be good, but we that's great. It was going to be good, but like that, that was an amazing outcome. We're like, okay. Like, so we've got a, you know, a, a pretty serious product on our hands. Yeah. Yeah. So are y'all uh, focusing on scaling up production now or, yeah. or mainly on the R&D? Both. 
So yeah. it's like, how do you, so how, like, as you scale, how do you maintain quality? That's a big one. So, you know, there's a lot, uh, and this is, again, this is going into the minutia of running a factory, right? Let's go, man. So, like, what is each station? You know, what does each station do? How do we make sure that the output of every single station is perfect every time? Uh, as you scale, as you bring on new staff, how do you make sure that's, that's maintained? You know, uh, it's an interesting one. So in when you're kind of trying to certify a material from an engineering point of view, there's a few different uh, things you look at. And one of them is the modulus of rupture. So basically, at what point does a beam, for instance, fail and break? Mm-hmm. Uh, and with it, you have to base your product on the lowest fifth percentile. So rather than it being kind of the average modulus of rupture or, you know, a, a high range, it's what is the worst product in this batch? And, okay, if it's failing, that's what you're allowed to certify it to. So we might get some products coming out that, are, you know, performing really well, but if there's one or two that's performing badly, that's all you're allowed to engineer it to. And so it's about how do you bring together the, the best and the worst so there's a very small range of difference yeah yeah uh and so that's you know that's that becomes the goal it's like okay you have to get rid of any variation everything has to be standard you have to make sure that you've got a hundred percent confidence that whatever you're making is going to stand up because we're talking about buildings here yeah yeah well that's i mean is there so then there's like safety factors right so like you probably can only load it with 20% of the load it's certified to type thing, or is that already factored in? No, no, so then all that gets applied. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and so you want to, you know, obviously you want to try and make sure you can maximize how much you can actually load it to. And are there, are there, are the rules kind of like, uh, okay, let's consider the weight of the roof and what yep. beams we have in place, and then obviously you go into that. And maybe you get some uh, grace because the roof that you would, theoretically be putting on is lower or less um heavy yeah i mean in a bamboo and, structure yeah so like engineering you've got your dead loads you've got your live loads you know here in bali you've also got the fact that it's a seismic area so how does it perform in earthquakes mm. um and all of those things determine you know what size your beam's going to be so you have spans in a building yeah depending on how much weight is on that span how much weight's in the building in total, what's the floor made out of, all those things go into, you know, how you build and what size you have to make it. What is the floor usually made out of in a structure like that? Well, so, I mean, we're working with people who are pretty, like, they want to build everything out of bamboo. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because I I believe I've seen concrete as a floor on a lot of them, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you could... Or even dirt. Yeah, so, um, I mean, yeah, it's just taste to a degree. Um, But, you know... With the lamination process for bamboo really started with flooring mm. because flooring is not structural. So we're not talking about holding up a building here. We're just talking about making sure it looks good. So there's a lot of bamboo flooring products. Uh, and so the thing that we're doing that's different is that we're talking about how do you use this material structurally? And that comes with so much extra layers of complexity because, you know, as I'm kind of very lightly alluding to, you got to make sure it doesn't fall over. Yeah. Do you think more, well, I was, when you were talking about the seismic activity, which I hadn't considered, I was thinking about the wind too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So factoring in that is another force that's affecting the structure. You're in the Philippines, right? Yeah. How does it, how's it going to typhoon? Ooh, yeah. You know, but that's the engineering. So like that just comes down to how you design your building. Yeah. So you have to see what the capabilities are of the materials, but you maybe you know that there's a target in terms of capabilities, but at least they then engineer the structure. Yeah, exactly. So all we have to do is supply the engineer with what are the mechanical properties. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about bamboo, but bamboo is a round pole. It's hollow. It's a natural object. And then... What, you know, what I'm doing here is laminate bamboo, which is completely different. It's mm-hmm. rectangular, it's solid, it's heavy, it's like timber. And so they're actually two completely different things that have completely different physical properties, completely different mechanical properties. Uh, and so they're not interchangeable at all. And so the process of, you know, well, it's like anything with manufacturing. The process of manufacturing it, of transforming it, 
is is turning it from one thing into another thing. And so what we're trying to do is characterize a completely new material. Yeah. Man, it's very cool. I like it. I I like the uh so I was I was pretty amazed at the different like the complexity and design of these structures mm-hmm. with the roofs that just have their peaks and then they flow in a certain direction and I I listened in particular to the one guy what Pablo Luna, yeah, right? Yeah. Who had built these things that were um influenced or inspired by different animals like you had the manta ray one and they just have all these turns and Mm. that was pretty neat no it's really cool so i mean (coughs) bali is a really amazing place right now for i guess organic architectural design i mean what pablo luna was referencing like biomorphic architecture how do we you know evoke natural forms and that's that's round pole bamboo um and it's interesting because there's there's kind of two different developments that are taking place technology-wise here. So in architecture, architectural software is making use of, you know, parametric software. You know, there's programs like Rhino, Grasshopper, which allow people to do these crazy curvy buildings that you wouldn't have been able to design, document, draw 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're starting to see the emergence of very kind of organic forms over the last 20 years in architecture, in, in you know, globally. But then you have this material bamboo that actually also really suits that process. Um, it's an organic material. It's irregular. So like no two pieces are the same and you can bend it, which is cool. That's what I was saying. Can yeah. you bend it? You can bend it. Really? And so it suits curvilinear forms. Uh, and so there's like a technology and, and then you can combine it with bamboo and you can create these like wild forms and the material allows you to do it. And that's then generating all these kind of new architectural styles that, you know, are largely kind of coming out of here in Bali with, you know, architectural studios like Abuku who did the Green School, Pablo Luna, you know, Charlie Hearn who runs Inspiral, which is the other talk I think yeah, you yeah. to check out and, they're doing a building there. You know, all these places, they're doing pretty wild stuff and you just don't really see it anywhere else in the world. Really? Indonesia's special in that sense or Bali specifically? Bali's special in that sense, yeah. I mean, people are now kind of iterating and evolving and doing their own versions of it. Uh, And, I mean, bamboo, basically it grows across the equator of the world. I mean, you get it growing in China and Japan, but it's largely, I mean, there's two different, well, okay, let's go deeper. Yeah. (laughs) There's two different types of bamboo. Running, which is what you find in China and Japan. So basically, each pole comes out of the ground by itself. It's the kind of crouching tiger, hidden dragon style bamboo forest. And tropical clumping bamboo. So a clumping bamboo, it, it will stay as a, as, as a clump. And so you see that here all through the tropics in Indonesia, Vietnam. When you say the clump, you're talking about the root? Yeah, so like there's a root ball. Yeah. Uh, so the big difference with bamboo and with timber, you know, timber, a tree comes out of the ground from a seed, grows into a tree, you cut it down, that tree's dead. Yeah. Bamboo is more like a grass. So it has what you call a rhizome, like a root network that runs underground, mm-hmm. and that's the plant. That's bamboo. Yeah. And then it sends, it shoots out of the ground. So a, a piece of bamboo will shoot out of the ground or grow to its full height in maybe four months. Oh my and it comes out of the ground in its full diameter. So it will kind of telescope out of the ground. So where a tree grows upwards and outwards, it's growing in two directions. Yeah. Bamboo grows in one direction. So it's, only, it's as wide as it's ever going to get at it's the bottom. It's as wide as it's ever going to get. Yeah. And this is an education thing because you take someone into a forest and they see the tallest, biggest, greenest looking piece of bamboo and they go, that's the one I have to harvest. And that's probably the youngest piece. Really? Because what happens, the, as I mean, if you're maintaining a healthy forest, the poles should just get bigger and bigger over time. Okay. Um, and, um, and so they'll come out, they'll look massive, the skin will be perfect and green, uh, but the, the kind of the inside isn't dense. So what happens is uh, as it gets older, the, the kind of the, the fibers, they all densify and you have to wait for it to get to about three to four years old before you cut it. Because otherwise, if you cut it too early... Um, it's high in starch and sugar and so as it dries out it doesn't have the structural capacity to remain round and it cracks and it crumples into itself okay 
Uh, and and so it's just you know there's a lot there's a lot you know there's even so just back to quality control. It's it doesn't matter what you do in a factory. If someone's supplying you bamboo that's too young, it's going to get mold. It's going to get eaten by pests. It's going to you know it's not going to be as strong. So for us actually the whole manufacturing process has to start in the forest so that we're making sure that we're getting the right product um, that's old enough. And if you knew, if you saw it come into the, the workshop or the manufacturing facility, would you be able to recognize that or you need to be in the forest to determine like the relative, like uh, based on what you were saying? Yeah, about no, no, it's a, that's an int- it's a good question. Uh, so it kind of works at two levels. So a really easy way to like combat this it's basically when a pole comes out of the ground, someone writes on it. So they'll, they'll you know, if particularly in a village co-op, they'll, they'll write the name of the person whose clump it belongs to and they'll also write the year in which it needs to be harvested. Uh, and so that way, if we get a pole come in and it's saying 2027, we know that someone's harvested that pole too early mm-hmm. and it'll also have their name on it. So we also then know, okay, well, this pole belonged to so-and-so. And, and you could tell if they wrote on it, like, after the fact. Well, I mean, probably couldn't, to be honest. So, you know, we'd have to check that. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a flaw. But I, I don't think, I mean, we haven't come across that too much. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. That's the kind of what we could do is to kind of make it easier from a systems point of view. But then um, there's characteristics. So if you look at a piece of bamboo, you can tell how old it is. Uh, it's much easier to do that if you're in the forest. There's lots of different characteristics from, you know, the way it comes out of the ground, the leaves, the colour of the skin. And over time, it's just one of those things you, like, learn to... You can kind of tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's quite cool because, like, the first time you go into a forest, you have no idea. Yeah. And then suddenly you've cut down a few thousand poles and you're like, that one's four years old, that one's two years old, that one's just come out of the ground... That's cool. It's just like it's learning a language. Yeah. So so they, but I mean they they plant it and they reproduce it and re nurture it to like you you cut down a, a I, I'm assuming what do you cut down like let's say twenty percent of a forest and harvest that mm-hmm. and then the other eighty percent yep you just continue you continue yeah. continue. But so so if it takes four months to grow and you can cut down twenty percent at a time is that am I like kind of on the right math there almost. So yeah. it takes four months to grow, but it takes four years before it's ready you to did harvest. Say that. Um, and so, but you harvest it annually, and so this is and this is where it comes back to the the kind of the reforesting reforesting degraded land. So, if you're talking about a crop, if you ask someone to plant a tree and wait twenty years before you can harvest that tree, particularly in you know lower socioeconomic countries, um, there's going to be peaks and troughs. There's going to be moments where Potentially, whoever's growing that tree might need some cash. You know, might there might be some sort of hardship that befalls, and so resilience is low, which means that the resilience for that forest to be grown and harvested at the right time is also low. Uh, whereas, if you take bamboo, and the way we do it is we actually plant it with other tree species. So you might have a tree that's growing twenty years, but that bamboo you can cut every year, and so that gives you an annual crop, a recurring income. Why do you do that? Plant it with other trees. Well, so that they can play both games. Well, so well, it's an interesting one. So part of it is, and it comes back to the different species of bamboo. So in China, for instance, which is the largest manufacturer of bamboo products, they only have running bamboo, <coughs> and so running bamboo is a monocrop essentially. You'll you'll see, you know, hills as far as the eye can see, just sprawling bamboo. Uh, and so because it's a monoculture, it, you know, it's creating a particular type of ecosystem. Whereas you come to Bali here and because it's a clumping bamboo, it's traditionally in a diverse ecosystem where it's not the only species. And so it allows for biodiversity. It allows for, you know, different plants with different root depths to be able to maintain soil health. Um, you know, bamboo's gro- dropping a lot of, leaves which creates a lot of nutrient on the on the forest floor uh and so you have a healthier ecosystem if you can grow the bamboo with other um with other species mm-hmm. with other trees you know and a lot of you know conversation is now around okay what are forest products 
Uh, and this, this is something that they talk about a lot in Indonesia because, you know, you want to look at the forest as, I guess, an income generating thing, but in a way where it's preserving the forest. Because you don't want people to come down, clear fell a forest, light a match, you know, burn whatever's left so that they can plant a cash crop. You want to go, okay, can we grow indigo in this forest? Is there a particular nut that has a high value that we're growing next to the bamboo? Have we got the bamboo that we're harvesting every year? And so how does that village exist by maintaining a forest and getting lots of different revenue streams out of it? So are there forests, like you always go to an established forest where bamboo has been and then perhaps you can encourage it to spread or can you also go to bare land and say we're gonna plant a bamboo mm. forest here so that's that's part of the mission so um for instance i mean you cut down particularly well, particularly in the tropics where ecosystems are very dependent upon rainforests cut that down and that mm-hmm. rainforest land can turn into desert essentially um if it degrades uh, because you know the soil's dependent upon all the nutrients from the trees being dropped, you know all sorts of things with water, and so one of the big things is you 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 clear fell a forest and you get erosion. So bamboo, because it has this rhizomic uh, kind of root network, is really good at holding soil together. So straight away, say you can plant it on a on the you know on the edge of a river, and bamboo loves it because it drinks up the water. Yeah, uh, and so it helps to hold together. The soil stops erosion. Uh, it's dropping leaves. So let's say we use it as a pioneer plant for reforesting. You plant it. Um, it's dropping its leaves. The leaves kind of help to build up the nutrient levels in the soil. So it goes from being bare land because one of the biggest issues is this. You get rid of all the tree cover. You just got the sun beating down on this earth. It's drying it out. Um, so you want you want shade. You want moisture to come back into that ground. You want the leaves to get nutrients. And it, so it becomes a really good pioneer for reforesting land. That's interesting. But you can't do that with the running bamboo. Well, no, you, well, you could. What? So it's just running bamboo, I guess, in Australia, for instance, is called an invasive species. Yeah, that's what I know from the U.S. Yeah, is the same in the U.S. say if you plant bamboo, it's going to take over your whole yard. Exactly. And it will. It will spread. And it will look for water. And it is wild how like how fast it spreads yeah uh and so that's just a different species that's a different type of bamboo could does the other kind not survive well in that other climate like well they all suit different climates right so running bamboo is often found in colder climates so a lot of the tropical tropical clumping bamboos don't survive well with frost for instance so instead you know yeah if you go to japan you go to china you'll see a running bamboo forest covered in snow and mm-hmm. it's fine. Uh, so it just, you know, it all, it's like timber species, right? You'll find an oak in a certain climate. You'll find a mahogany tree in a very different climate. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on the, the, um, the local context. Interesting. So this, this is a uh, great place for the clumping bamboo. Yeah. It just thrives in well, this it's, climate. It's native. So we're using yeah. native species. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, like, as part of the um, creating value for the local communities, like, I mean, if somebody has some land, you could say, look, we have an opportunity, you could do this, you could become a supplier, that, mm. that sort of thing too? So it works in lots of different ways. So, yeah, so, I mean, and part of what we're trying to do here with these products we're developing is we want to establish constant demand and we want to grow that demand so that we have a constant revenue stream for these communities. Uh, so... I mean, they can get money in lots of different ways, but if we can supply them with a, a recurring income based upon them looking after the land and selling us this bamboo as a result, that's great. Uh, and then there's lots of different ways you involve people. So one of the main things, and one of the actually one of the really interesting things about bamboo is that bamboo will only flower and seed maybe every 50, 70, 100 years. And actually, weirdly, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how right this is, but it, this is pretty much what everyone says. It all flowers at the same time. So you'll have, uh, so let's call it, let's say, you know, a particular species of bamboo, and globally, all of it will flower at the same time, and then they die. Hmm. Uh, and so bamboo is actually really bad at self-propagation. 
and it's evolved in a kind of, you know, uh, like cohabitation with humans. So over time, bamboo forests, particularly clumping bamboo, has spread through the interaction of the humans who are tending it. Um, so if you cut down a, pa- a pole of bamboo and you stick it in the ground and do the right things to it, it actually then will grow into... It's like cloning. It grows into another plant. And so one of the things that we do is because bamboo will not naturally spread and seed um, or it won't do it very often, you know, you get... Often you get the women in the village, they take the branches from the bamboo that you've cut down, they, you know, they do the right couple of things to it, stick it in the ground and they grow them as seedlings that you then grow up into plants that you can then reforest the land with. And, you know, you know one of the organisations that we work with, they'll buy that, those seedlings off the women sell them to the government for reforestation projects and that's just another income source. So, um, yeah, it's like you're kind of trying to encourage different ways of engaging with the material. Yeah, that's cool. And then what about, uh, I mean, in the factory, obviously, there's there's opportunities that are created for people as you figure this out and then scale manufacturing and then and then the building to the extent there's more material and more projects and more use cases or more um, capabilities of the material, then it can be even widely or more widely integrated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the really kind of interesting things for us is we're looking at, I guess, buildings as carbon sinks. So, I mean, carbon trading is still fairly undeveloped, but that idea that, you know, people might invest carbon offsets in forests. Well, another way of looking at it is, okay, can our building be a representation of stored and embodied carbon um, that we can actually get finance for constructing by using it as a carbon offset? Mm. And so... Like a tax credit yeah, so to build it because it's going to consume carbon and prolong the life of the earth? And that's kind of, I think, and I think that's where regulation is heading. Different countries are doing it at different speeds. So, for instance, in Scandinavia, if you're building a building over 1,000 square metres you have to do a life cycle analysis. So what are the materials going into it? What are the energy uses over its life period? What will happen at the end? Uh, And if, well, firstly, there's a certain threshold you have to meet. And then if you actually meet that threshold and maybe surpass whatever it is they've set, they might then give you, they'll allow you to build a couple of extra stories above what the regulations might be. Or they, they give you, there's, you know, there's incentives for developers and builders to actually meet those requirements and obviously scandinavia is fairly progressive in that regard but i think that's going to filter through the rest of the world because you know as as people try to address the impacts of climate change you know one of the things is okay how do we incentivize people to do that in the built environment uh and so for us you know what we're trying to do is okay how do we leverage other finance to support the construction of our buildings and a big one is okay let's look at the embodied carbon particularly because a bamboo pole, it grows so quickly. And that pole will probably die after about seven years. So whatever carbon it's absorbed, after seven years, it's probably going to go back into the environment. Okay. Whereas if you can cut it down, you can process it, and you can turn it into a beam that lasts 50 years, straight away you're actually storing that carbon for 43 years longer than it might have already otherwise been held. And so you start to actually bank up stored carbon that is all starting to accrue, which is accounting for larger carbon storage that is actually being held inside materials rather than being re-released into the atmosphere. Mm. I was going to ask you about that. You just, that's, that's a wonderful explanation because <laughs> uh, I didn't know what you meant by stored carbon. Yes. Until, yeah. yeah. So, you know, plants photosynthesize, they, they you know, whatever. They, and so part of the process is the carbon is stored within within a tree, within a plant, within a pole of bamboo. All of these things store carbon. Um, and then at certain points of time in their life, that will be re-released. And so that's the big argument for timber. And also it's an argument for bamboo um, that, you know, you can, especially with a tree, if you can leave that tree standing, amazing. But once you cut that down, you want that product to last as long as possible. And the re-release into nature once something dies is like, the the science or whatever is proven on that yeah 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 i mean i'm i didn't I'm not, know I'm, that. Not, I'm not qualified enough yeah, to, yeah. to go into it but like you know for instance 
you have a log, a tree falls over in a forest. Mm-hmm. That log decays. Okay, so what is that? You know, maybe that's going into the soil. You know, that's where like things like uh, peat, for instance. You know, people burn peat because it's so filled with carbon. And I, I might be butchering this, so I'm, I don't pretend to I know this know. topic at all. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it gets re-released in different ways. Decomposition, it goes back into the atmosphere. Uh, and that's, that's kind of part of the natural cycle. And that's fine in a kind of, you know, healthy environment. But when we're in the context of having too much carbon in the atmosphere, yeah, then, you know, you want to try and see how do we limit that. Yeah, that's interesting. The more you grow, the more you consume and store, and yeah. the longer you store, the more you need. Yeah, and I mean, humans are consumptive, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's, it's all well and good for us to say, oh, we're not going to drive cars or we're not going to... Like, no, everyone is going to live the way that they're going to live. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do, you know, with this is, okay, how do we allow for consumption? Because people will want something new. They'll invariably, they'll knock down their building and build something else. So how do we allow for that consumption? But we allow for it in a way that's actually restorative rather than causing degradation. Yeah. And is your interest in um, the big picture of doing things for the environment come from the work or your interest in the environment drove the work? Um, yeah. I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I think a bit of both. Um, I'm, I don't know, I'm of the belief that kind of everyone can believe whatever they want and live and let live. Live and let live. You know, I think the biggest challenge with society at the moment is that breakdown of the capacity to have a conversation with someone who disagrees with you. Um, so I'm, yeah, I, I look, I definitely um, have environmental concerns and i see that as kind of quite an important thing um you know it's always shaped how i voted and all those things uh but then also working with the bamboo has kind of provided me a deeper insight into things that i knew nothing about for instance ecosystem services how do ecosystems provide benefits to the way in which we live how do we you know account for those things uh and i think it's interesting because i mean ultimately the world is so complex you know, and it's made up of many, many different systems and ecosystems and relationships and really anything we do as humans will probably disrupt that in a way where we don't know the consequences. So we don't really know what you know, what the outcomes are of anything we do. Uh, and, and nothing's a one or a zero. Nothing is a one or a zero. Everything sits somewhere in between. Yeah, there's there's like a million influencing or a million inputs that equal all these high-level outputs. Yeah. And so, you know, I think about the environment in that way. Like the world is amazing in the way in which it's evolved and the way in which it works. And like we don't know anything about it. Like, you know, we, it's just like we can't predict the weather, right? Mm-hmm. Like so when it comes to the environment, like I also have that kind of mindset in that you just have to kind of come from a point of humility. There is absolutely nothing that I know about anything that really kind of I can actually say with certainty Mm -hmm. um and so you know all we can do is try to do what I see is good um and yeah and that's kind of and that's driven me a lot you know and and my interest in this is that you know even you know in this whole process that I'm describing there's there's so many different flaws and contradictions but you do what you can to try and make the most of the information that you have yeah so it's a it's a natural fit, and to your point earlier, the gut thing yeah. about influencing how you made decisions. Like if that's how you've uh, you've all you've always cared and you've always been aware and th- been thoughtful of the environment. Yeah, it, it does kind of make logical sense how to the like when you got into building, then you found a speciality, and it it made sense within that, and then now you've gone further into that. Yeah, well, I mean, and even, like, to go back to, like, the fact that I originally got into it because I just didn't want to sit at a desk all day. Yeah. And, like, and and I still have this in that, like, you know, there's a lot of different things now. As you get older, you know, there's more responsibilities, more on your plate. And then I go out into a forest and I harvest some poles and I'm there with a machete and I'm cleaning the branches off a pole. And it's so meditative. Yeah. And it's really interesting about how no matter what responsibility you might have or anything, 
like sometimes going and just doing a mindless task that you can just do again and again it like it frees you up in a lot of ways yeah and for me that's that's where nature becomes so important uh, because sometimes like as a human like we're animals right like we we just got to go out we got to be in nature we got to use our bodies um and whatever it might be that we're doing it, it's so good for your brain so good for your mental health yeah that oof, man that is spot That's a on topic. <laughs> that is spot on like i i couldn't agree more and and like when you get so into the zone of of sitting at the desk and traveling and kids and everything else it's yeah, you, ha- you have to like be very thoughtful to take yourself back to things like that. Yeah. I mean, I um, I think it's Walt Emerson who has this quote that like for everything that we gain in society, we we lose something else. Yeah. So you get Google Maps, you lose your sense of direction. Yeah. You know. Well, uh, I think I think of it too, and I said this to somebody recently. Have you ever seen the movie Fight Club? Yeah, yeah. So he says the things that you own end up owning you. Yeah. And like. That doesn't sound like a lot, or it sounds clever and cute, but the more you think about it, you're like, whoa. Yeah. No, and it's, I think it's so true. Like, and things that we're doing are, you could, you could define them as unnatural, right? So, us sitting at a desk all day, staring at a screen, you know, eating whatever it is that we can get because it's convenient, those aren't things in the kind of way we were biologically programmed to exist you know we were meant to walk long distances we were you know we were designed to do these things that we no longer do um and it's it's a kind of a complex relationship that comes and for me i i have to have that release and i have to be in my body and i have to move my body and i have to make something um just to sometimes escape yeah and bali's good for that Bali's great for that. I, f- I feel like it's just natural. Like you're, you're probably, I don't know, I haven't put a lot of thought in this, but you're probably like uh, at a minimum like 25 to 30% more active just by being here versus being so, like somewhere else. Yeah. Like well, I mean, a, it's, it's a funny one because I also find myself just sitting in a car all day being driven from place to place yeah, to go well, do these meetings. But the thing I do, if I need to go to like a warung, I'm like, let me walk. Yeah, yeah. You know, let me let me walk to the grocery store or whatever. Like, I thought about when we went stand-up paddleboarding today, I was just going to walk down there, yeah. you know. It would probably take 15, 20 minutes, yeah. but it's just something else to be out there and be active. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So, like, for instance, um, last year we were living in Paris, and Paris is a really easy city to exist in on foot. You know, you walk to the, to the metro, you catch the metro, you get out at the stop, maybe you get a little bike and ride it around. And so my incidental exercise there was so much higher than it was here. But it also got bloody cold. Yeah. (laughs) And so here I am. I find myself doing a lot more activities, right? So we went for a stand-up paddleboard. I'm suddenly swimming laps. I've never swum in my life. You know, like you you, you do these things because it's warm and it's nice and like like it encourages you to to exercise in a different way. Yeah, yeah, and and want to be fit to live. Yeah, because there's opportunities for like a whole host of different things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was gonna ask you something else. Uh oh. So now, now that you've gotten into this part of the work, do you find that it has driven you? Well, t- I guess you just answered part of it with being in cars all day. I know your pain on that, but has it driven you back to the desk, if you will? Mm. Or yeah. do, Weirdly, do you I'm still get a, lot a nice blend? In, well, um, no, it's definitely driven me back to the desk. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I think also as, again, as you get older, it's harder and harder to avoid that desk. Um, and yeah, you stop doing all the things you actually enjoyed originally and you just end up managing people to do those things for you. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I started in the field like learning all about what we do and then managing projects. And then it was just like more desk, desk, desk. And now I do get to run around and meet with people and speak at events. And I like that because it's challenging in new ways. Like I, I'm very much uh, have challenged myself on like public speaking. Mm. And I feel like there's been a lot of growth there. And I think I still have so far to go in that. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, but that that's been like the the freshest challenge mm. that i've had since like getting really head down in the, on the pc at the desk yep 
So that's crazy. But I mean, I, f- I do feel like, and maybe you, I'd be interested in your opinion that, um, having started there and you having spent a lot of time in the field, like when you go have a meeting and like, I can tell by what you've explained today that you genuinely believe in what you're doing and, and you care and it means something to you. It's like not a job. And to yeah. me, that's been so important about what I do yeah. is like, for instance, if, if we don't do our job correctly, then power plant goes offline and, and people don't have electricity yeah. in certain parts of the area, depending yeah. on where you are, which in these countries, that's yeah. how it is. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, um, I mean, I'm very blessed in the sense that I love what I do. Mm-hmm. And like, I have such a, you know, like there's things that I charge money for and there's things that I'll do for free because yeah. I just enjoy it. Um, and it's funny because people sometimes say, oh, what's your hobby? What is it? And it's like, I'm doing my hobby. <laughs> I know. And it's like weird. But then when you reflect on it, you're like, well, but it is like special. And I do care about it. It is doing good in the world. And I have the opportunity to teach people. And so in that respect, it's it's not like work is life. But no, no it's it's I mean, it's especially with young kids. It's a it's a it's a hard balance. Because, you know, like, how do you balance, how do you balance work? How do you stop work from coming in? Especially when you, you enjoy it. Yeah. You know, like, it's, you're like, oh, like, like, I, I mean, I have a hard time sleeping sometimes. If I'm, if I'm doing a project, it's just in my brain. Yeah. Like, you know, you're thinking about design or whatever. And so, um, yeah, you have to, like, how do you bracket, like, I'm not good at stopping that creep of, like, your work and your life, you know, kind of mixing. Um, but, you know, when it mixes, it also allows you to kind of operate in a slightly more flexible way. And that that's also got its benefits. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. I feel like I'll wake up and, and I'll in the shower, you know, I just have these like incredible ideas where I'm like, oh, I just need to phrase it in this way, or we need to like demonstrate it in that way. And then I'll come and like write it mm-hmm. down. And I, I yeah. like that. But so that's the gift and the curse of it being just like, yeah. so your brain being so immersed in it totally totally well cool man well thank you very much such a pleasure thanks for having me it was a lot of fun always a pleasure